0: Have you heard that that popular phrase that that goes something like this? There are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Uh, It it gets thrown around often, but discussed very little. Uh, It often arises in a conversation when people are looking at a situation that is uncertain, when when they really don't know kind of what the outcome is. And so, you know, someone flippantly says, well, you know, there's, there's only two things that are certain in life, death and Zaxus. Well, there are actually um, more than just two things that are certain in life. But if we're honest, as we think about that phrase, we have to admit that death really is certain. Unless Jesus comes again and overturns the effects of sin and death as he promised he would. Unless Jesus returns again, death really is certain. One of the interesting aspects of our culture is that we actually do not like to talk about the certainty of death. Uh, death bothers us. And there's a certain extent to, that death should bother us. Uh, it, it is proof, it's, it's undeniable proof that sin has ravaged our world and our relationship with God. But, for those who believe in Jesus, there is a certain sense in which we should not fear death. We shouldn't desire death, to be sure, but we shouldn't fear it either. Consider what uh, the Puritan minister, Richard Baxter, once said. He wrote, If a man that is desperately sick today did believe that he should arise sound the next morning. Or a man today in despicable poverty. Had assurance that he should tomorrow arise as a prince. Would they be afraid to go to bed? Or, or consider the words of William Grenall who wrote. Let thy hope of heaven master thy fear of death. Why shouldst thou be afraid to die? Who hope to live by dying? More biblically, we could remember what the Apostle Paul said while facing the prospect of death in a Roman prison. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul wrote, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This morning, we have the privilege of studying Deuteronomy 34. This chapter in the Bible recounts the death of Moses. Moses is an unspeakably large figure on the stage of redemptive history. And as we'll learn in our study, he was a humble man prepared to die. He was a man who could confidently walk to his death because he was certain of his future. The only way you can be prepared to die is if you are certain you will live. Death and taxes are not the only two things that we can be certain of. We can also be certain of our hope of eternal life after death. And so I pray that this study of Deuteronomy 34 would strengthen our confidence in Jesus and all of the promises that we have in him. And if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 34. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 177. 177. We have been preparing for the death of Moses from the very beginning of our study in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 37, Moses reminded the people of Israel that he would not enter the promised land of Canaan. There he told them, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, that Joshua would lead the people of Israel into the land, and that he, Moses, would die outside of the land. And as we've been studying the book of Deuteronomy, I hope that the tension of Moses' impending death has been weighing heavy upon us. It was certainly weighing heavily upon the children of Israel as they listen to their beloved leader and father in the faith issue his last words. This book is is a compilation of his last words. Words which no doubt he spoke with urgency, earnestness, and a sincere love for Israel. He was preaching as a dying man. He knew it, and Israel knew it too. Deuteronomy 34 comes on the heels of Moses' final words in the book. He has concluded his sermon. Moses has told Israel of God's love and God's law. He has reminded them of their covenant obligation. Since they are a people saved by Yahweh, they need to live like it. They are to display their love for God by keeping his law. In chapter 33, Moses blessed the children that he has led and loved for 40 years. And in Deuteronomy 34, Moses turns. He walks up a mountain, looks over the promised land, and he goes down to death. This chapter also looks forward to what God will do in Israel's history. This final chapter of Deuteronomy could have been written by Moses. God could have divinely inspired Moses to write a predictive chapter concerning his death. Our God has that power It's more likely that Joshua or another man equally divinely inspired by the Lord penned this chapter. Uh, It would not be surprising if Joshua penned this chapter. Jericho is mentioned a couple of times in the chapter, we'll see. uh, And Joshua fought a pretty big battle there. Uh, Moreover, it would not be surprising that as Moses' successor, Joshua would so honor his mentor with this remarkable tribute to him. As we'll actually see from the text, while Joshua takes up the task of leading Israel, what Israel is really doing and following Joshua is following the commands of Moses. We'll see that when we come to verse 9. The, the aim of this chapter, the, the goal of Deuteronomy 34, is to conclude one chapter in Israel's history and begin another. If the chapter has a point, it's simply this. Look forward to the coming of God's promised prophet. A prophet like Moses, but a prophet greater than Moses. That's the message of Deuteronomy 34. We're going to study Deuteronomy 34 in three sections under three headings. Looking over, looking back, and looking forward. Looking over, looking back, and looking forward. Let's begin with our first point, looking over which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western Sea the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. In these verses, we see Moses go up, Pisca, look over the land and hear the Lord recount his faithfulness. Even here, it's important to step back and, and ask a basic question. Why would Moses go up Mount Nebo? Why would he walk up to the top of the hill? That's what Pisgah means. It means hill. Uh, Mount Nebo may well refer to a, a mountain range and with Pisgah being one peak. Or, or Mount Nebo may just be a, a singular mountain with Pisgah functioning kind of as a protruding hill. On the mountain itself, whatever the case may be, the the question remains why would Moses climb up only to go down to his death? Would would it be enough to say that Moses did this because God commanded him to go up this mountain and die? Flip back a few chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 32, the end of that chapter. Find Deuteronomy 32, verses 48 to 50. That's on page 175 of the Bible's provided. And, and follow along as I read Deuteronomy 32, verses 48 to 50. Deuteronomy 32, there in verse 48. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered To his people. Moses, he he walks up the hill in Deuteronomy 34 because he is being obedient to what God has commanded. Is this not a powerful last act from the leader of Israel? Moses has spent his last days telling Israel, do as the Lord commands. And the last thing he does in his life is what the Lord commands. After calling Israel to obedience, Moses demonstrates what obedience looks like. And think about this too. Moses even demonstrates the lengths to which God's people should go in their obedience. God's people should be willing to obey even unto death. The same is no less true for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. We are called to obey the Lord and His commands even if it costs us our lives. You'd be hard-pressed to put it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Does this mean that our path of obedience will mean we physically die for Jesus? It may mean that. But even if it doesn't, obedience to Jesus will certainly mean putting to death the passions of our flesh, the envy and greed of our hearts, and every other sinful inclination which would tempt us toward disobedience. Israel has heard the call to obedience from Moses and they saw him demonstrate it. We have heard the same in Jesus Christ and we have seen Jesus demonstrate obedience to God. Didn't the Apostle Paul say that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? Since Moses' obedience was public and visible, Since Jesus' obedience is public and visible, let's ask ourselves, is our obedience to God public and visible? Do our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, do they know, do they see that what we say and what we do, we do because the aim of our lives is to give ourselves to faith-filled obedience to our God? Well, turning back to Deuteronomy 34, turning forward, as the case may be. We see that, Mount, uh, that Moses climbed Mount Nebo. We also learn that he looked over the land. We're, we're given a glimpse, a special glimpse of the land in the latter half of verse 1 and verse 2, all of verse 2. What we learn from these verses is that Moses could see the whole of the land. This description itself, uh, it moves in a systematic counterclockwise sweep. So from the, the north to the west to the south to the east. And the few comments mentioning valleys and palm trees and the sea remind us that this was an exceedingly good land that the Lord was giving his people. And Moses, he must have longed to go in. It was a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, descriptions that Moses had given himself over the course of his ministry among the people of Israel. He knew how good this land was. He must have longed to go in. Do you have a longing to go in? Christian, do you read the glimpse of glory that we're given in the last few chapters of Revelation and long for the new heavens and the new earth? Does your soul ache for the day when you will live in a world where there will be no more sin and suffering? Are you pining for the day when you will live in a world where there is no more pain and God's people enjoy perfect peace? Are you yearning for that world where there is no disobedience, disease, and death. Do you think much of that heavenly land or much of this wearisome world? Home really is where the heart is. Where is your true home? Where is your heart? This look over. The land that God gave Moses is also reminiscent of the look over the land that God gave Abraham in Genesis 13 and 15, which is precisely what uh, Yahweh, what God reminds Moses of there in verse 4. Hundreds of years before, God promised Abraham that his offspring would inherit this land, that they would go into the land. In fact, many scholars have suggested that this view of Canaan is the last step in an ancient legal process of a land grant, Not to diminish what's going on here in Deuteronomy 34, but it's something like the final walkthrough before signing the papers to purchase a home. It's part of the legal process. Israel is going to inherit this land, and Yahweh, God, is showing their representative head the land that they're about to legally and rightfully enter and take possession of. See, removing the Canaanites from the land was fully justified. It was no longer their land. Removing the Canaanites was what God commanded It was God's land, and he was giving it to his people as a trust. God's faithfulness is on display here at the end of Deuteronomy. He is delivering on his promises. And this, God's faithfulness, is what makes him utterly unique. You can scan the religions of the world, and you will not find a promise-making, promise-keeping God like Yahweh. His promises are grand, they are utterly unmatched, they stretch across time, and they come to pass just as he said. Hundreds of years have passed between God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, and history guided by God's hand has marched steadily on to this point when God gives his people what he promised. The God of the Bible is trustworthy. He keeps his word. He has proven himself faithful over and over again. He will not let his promises fail because he can never fail. God's faithfulness to his word is a double edged sword. He promised that Abram's offspring would enter the land, and they will. But he also promised that Moses would not enter the land. And as we see from the end of verse 4, God keeps his promise too. Keeps this promise too. This is what we also learn in our second point, looking back. So let's turn and consider that. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 to 8. And as we consider this second point, looking back, let's begin there in verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him In the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. The the orientation of these verses is that of a a backward glance. We can see that especially with the last portion of verse 8 where where Israel's period of mourning is described as having ended. It's come to a conclusion. And in that sense, we're we're looking at the death and burial of Moses kind of in the rearview mirror. Verses 5 to 8 are a report of Moses' death and burial. Note well that Moses is described as a servant of the Lord. When you think about his life, he really was a servant, wasn't he? At first, he was a, he was a reluctant servant. Uh, when God spoke to him in the burning bush back in Exodus, Moses objected that he should be God's servant. He was not persuaded that Israel would listen to him. He wasn't persuaded that they would believe that he was the one that God would use to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. He even, even after God reassured him, uh, Moses objected again. He said, oh Lord, but, but I'm not eloquent. Uh, I'm slow of speech. And Moses even said, Uh, Please send someone else. Moses was brought through that reluctance and brought into service. The Lord had found his servant. And Moses, he served the Lord well. Only a select few received the esteemed designation of servant in the Lord in the Old Testament. Besides Moses, Joshua, David, Job, Isaiah, Israel, the nation, and finally the, the, the messianic servant of the Lord is depicted in Isaiah's prophecy as receiving this title. The, the New Testament writers uh, also esteemed Moses as a faithful servant of the Lord. So just consider what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. There he writes, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Keep in mind what the writer to the Hebrews just said. Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house, and the aim of his service in God's house was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. I would not be surprised if the words that conclude verse 5 are a part of that testimony. Moses dies according to the word of the Lord. Moses had to die just as God had said. It was a matter of necessity. And when we come to the Gospels and read Jesus' predictions of his own death, he speaks of his death as a necessity. Quoting the servant song of Isaiah 53, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, For I tell you this, the scripture must be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And, of course, the Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Like Moses, Jesus died according to the word of the Lord. Moses not only died, but he was buried. Who buried him? You see it there in the text, don't you? God buried him god buried him and this i think is an incredibly moving scene you have to remember that in that day and age it was the responsibility of family members to bury the dead and so here is god taking up the task of the family and burying moses i think this speaks to the closeness of the relationship between god and his servant And in verse 6, we're also given the interesting detail that no one knows the place of his burial. Scholars have uh, surmised that this was done to prevent the people of Israel from kind of establishing a shrine to Moses, which may in, in the end result in de facto worship of the man. But there's another reason for this. As we'll see in the closing verses of the chapter, the people of Israel were not to look back to Moses, but to look forward to the one his life and ministry pointed to the one of whom he spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. There Moses said to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Indeed, in time, God did raise up a prophet like Moses. And no one knows the place of this burial to this day because he's not buried anymore. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. This wonderful little detail concerning the unknown location of Moses' burial is all a part of encouraging the people of God to keep their eyes on the horizon of what he has promised he will do in their history. They're not to look back to Moses. They're to look forward to the one who would be a prophet like Moses. And as we read verse 7, did you puzzle over the fact that Moses didn't die of old age? He certainly was old. Uh, He was 120 years old. The oldest member of our congregation is 105. But our dear sister can't climb a mountain like Moses did. Her eyes are not as strong as they once were. Her vigor isn't unabated. In verse 7, it paints the picture that Moses could have continued into the land if he wanted to. The problem, as we have seen, is that the Lord didn't want him to. How do you feel about that? Is, is that? is that okay with you that Moses is forbidden from inheriting the promised land? Moses, he dies outside the promised land according to the word of the Lord because of his own personal rebellion against God. This was recorded back in Numbers chapter 20. In that passage, we learn that the Lord commanded Moses to, to bring water from a rock by speaking to it and so satisfy the thirst of the people of Israel in the desert. But Moses, he did not speak to the rock in faith. Instead, he struck the rock in anger and unbelief. So listen to Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. How does that sit with you? We're... We're looking over the the panorama of the promised land. But take a panoramic view of Moses' life. Consider that he obeyed the Lord. He stood before Pharaoh and commanded him to let God's people go. Consider that he obeyed the Lord. He led Israel to Sinai and gave them the law. Consider that when Israel worshipped the golden calf, he even offered his own life to God that Israel might be spared. Consider that when called to leave Sinai, he obeyed and led Israel out. Consider that he led the nation 40 years in the wilderness. And yet, he had this this one moment of anger and impatience and unbelief when the people of Israel grumbled and complained. It It was really their fault, wasn't it? Have you ever had just one moment of anger and impatience when others are driving you nuts? (laughs) Have you even had just one moment when you gave in to your fleshly desires and had a regrettable outburst of anger? Do you think this is fair? Do you think this is just that God keeps Moses from entering the promised land when he's still so full of life? When you step back and, and... Look over the whole of Moses' life, a life dominated by faithfulness and obedience to God. We don't tend to think of his brief outburst of anger. No, we tend to think of him as a faithful servant of the Lord, just as verse 5 declares. But there are a few lessons that we must learn from this passage and really from the Bible as a whole. We really don't have any say when it comes to the matter of the length of our days, no matter how strong we are. We hate to hear that because we've so structured our lives that we actually control most things, or we think we control most things. We decide when we wake up, when we eat, when we shower, when we work, when we do our laundry, and the list could go on and on. We made so many decisions this morning. We control so much of our lives that we are lulled into thinking that we are in total control. But we really don't own our lives and control them we really aren't God. The keys of life and death really are not in our hands. They're in God's hands. They always have been. They always will be. Moses walked up that mountain in peace with that truth, that his life was ultimately in God's hands. Are you at peace with that truth? Have you come to recognize that your life is in the hands of the one who gave you life? You're only going to be at peace with that truth if you're at peace with God. You're only going to be at peace with that truth if you're not fighting him, but instead submitting to his kind, generous, and gracious rule. Are you at peace with God? Here's another lesson that we learn from these verses. One sin is enough to keep you out of the promised land. Remember, the the promised land of Canaan, from the vantage point of the writers of the Old and New Testament, is but a type and shadow of what God's people are going to rejoice in and receive in the new heavens and the new earth. It's precisely what the writer of the Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews chapters 3, 4, and 11. One sin is enough to keep you out of the promised land of heaven. If you sin once, it is enough to keep you from the loving, eternal presence of the Lord. The wages of sin, singular. The wages of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says, the wages of sin is death. That's what death deserves to be paid. That's what sin deserves to be paid, death. Death is the minimum wage. For as one person has said, For our working in sin. And we've all worked in sin. And this has been announced from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave Adam and Eve one command. And he told them that if they broke that command, they would die. Adam and Eve could eat from every tree in the garden except one. Should they eat of the fruit of the tree, of that tree, they would die. Is this just Is this God's world? It is. This sentence against sin is just because sin is nothing less than rejection, rebellion, and refusal to obey the God who gave us life and breath. You see, our working in sin, sin is using the very strength that God has graciously given us to exalt ourselves over him, to sit in judgment upon him. Sin is an attempt to take God's throne and claim it As our own. Moses had done this, and so have we. This first and last look over the promised land is a gracious gift from God. So was the undimmed eye and the unabated vigor. For even though Moses would not enter into the land, he believed that there was an eternal promised land, which his Redeemer would bring him into. He knew there was a coming prophet. He believed God's promises. While this text looks backward upon Moses' death, as we can see from verse 8, we can be certain that Moses looked forward to the day of his Redeemer. Will we make it into the promised land of heaven? We certainly won't make it into the promised land of heaven based upon our own merits. Do you think your life is any better than Moses? Do you think that you have kept and obeyed God's commands more fully than Moses? As you look back on your life, has it been marked by an unbroken, unstained obedience to God? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us would make that claim. We may only enter into the promised land of heaven based upon someone else's perfect obedience to God. And make no mistake, in order to live in the presence of the perfectly holy God, you must be perfectly holy and obedient. And as we look at our lives, we must come to recognize that our only hope of entering the promised land of heaven is to be led into the promised land of heaven under the name and leadership of someone who was perfectly obedient and holy. Moses would not lead Israel into the promised land because of his sin. So we need to look forward and see that Joshua would lead the people of Israel in. But even Joshua did not give the people of God the final rest that was symbolized and promised in the land of Canaan. He is not the promised prophet. We must look forward even farther in the history of redemption to find that leader of God's people. And in order to do that, we need to take up the outlook for the final verses of Deuteronomy 34. So let's turn and consider our third and final point, looking forward. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 9 to 12. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses." "...whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel." These verses, they describe Joshua as stepping into the shoes of Moses while at the same time admitting that Moses' Jews have yet to be fully filled. Joshua was equipped with all that he needed to lead the people of God. He was full of the spirit of wisdom we see. And the idea behind that phrase is that Joshua possesses, as a gracious gift from above, all that he needs for for carrying out all that God calls him to. And how has Joshua come into possession of this gracious gift? Well... Uh, We see there Moses laid his hands on him. This is what the Lord told Moses to do in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. And and just a few verses later, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 23, we learn that Moses commissioned Joshua for leading God's people just as God had said. Even though Joshua has been fully equipped and publicly endowed with the office of Israel's leader, notice that in the second half of verse 9, that though the people of Israel are obeying Joshua, They are really obeying what the Lord had commanded Moses, commanded through Moses. Moses, he he really cast this long shadow over Joshua's leadership. And Joshua is neither afraid of that nor resentful of it. In fact, if Joshua is indeed the author of this chapter, what is plain in verses 10 to 12 is that Joshua, he exalts Moses with a purpose of pointing his readers beyond Moses. You see, while verses 10 to 12 look back at the life and ministry of Moses, they do so for the purpose of arousing anticipation of the prophet that Moses said would come in Deuteronomy 18:15. We've heard it before. We need to hear it again. Deuteronomy 18:15, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen." That's what Moses said. And I wonder if you hear the similarities between Deuteronomy 18.15 and Deuteronomy 34.10. In both texts, we find the language of a rising prophet. In both texts, we have references to the idea that the prophet will be like Moses. In both texts, we have the idea that he will come from among Israel. This prophet, we're told in Deuteronomy 34.10, has not yet arisen. And the very fact that this prophet has not yet arisen tells us that the prophet we're looking for is not Joshua. This prophet will need to know the Lord God like Moses knew the Lord God. This prophet will need to know God intimately. This phrase, face to face, is is idiomatic. In in other words, it's not uh, to be read literally. It's It's a short saying meant to express closeness. This prophet, if he Really is to be like Moses, will have to be endowed with signs and wonders similar to that of Moses. He will have to be endowed with mighty power and great deeds, and he will have to perform them in the sight of God's people. Who? Who in the history of redemption is a prophet like Moses? Who in the history of redemption fulfills all of the necessary requirements of Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 to 12? Well, it's none other than Jesus. And we see this in the New Testament. Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 10 to 12, uh, give us three requirements for this prophet. First, this prophet must know God intimately like Moses. Second, his life must be full of mighty signs and wonders like Moses. Third, he must accomplish an exodus like Moses. And to up the ante, let's add a fourth that's in Deuteronomy. In accordance with Deuteronomy... Chapter 18, verse 15, this prophet must be so authoritative that God's people must listen to him. Remember what Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy 18, 15, it is to him you shall listen. Well, let's see if Jesus fills Moses' shoes. The first requirement found in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 Is that this prophet like Moses must know God intimately. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Turn to the Gospel of John. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, that's on page 886. I believe it's on page 886. These are the opening words of John's Gospel. And they tell us about the eternal intimacy of the divine Son and Father. John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. These verses tell us about the divine intimacy of the Son, the eternal Word, and God the Father. From all eternity, God the Son, who took on flesh in the person of Jesus, lived in perfect, loving intimacy with God the Father. If you flip forward to John chapter 5, flip forward just a few chapters to John chapter 5, and take a look at verse 19. That's page 890 of the Bible's provided. Just a few verses before John 5.19, uh, in John 5.17, Jesus has said that his father is working and that he is working. And in the next verse, in John chapter 5, verse 18, the Jewish religious leaders they get mad at Jesus because they recognize the intimacy that Jesus is claiming. They recognize that Jesus is claiming to call God his father. And they recognize that Jesus is claiming to have divine equality with God the Father. And now Jesus, he proves their fears true in John chapter 5 verse 19. In this verse Jesus explains that he is working in perfect harmony with the Father's work. John 5:19. So Jesus said to them, truly truly, which means Pay attention, what I'm about to say is absolutely and totally true. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, here Jesus makes the point that his authority is not at odds with God the Father's authority. Rather, his authority is a congruent, corresponding, and coextensive authority. Jesus never exercises his divine authority apart from his harmonious relationship with the Father. If the first requirement of Deuteronomy 34 is that the rising prophet must know God intimately like Moses, then Jesus has met that requirement from before Moses was ever born. Maybe it's the case that God raised up Moses to serve as a shadow of the true substance of salvation to come in Jesus. The second requirement of Deuteronomy 34 is that the rising prophet's life must be full of mighty signs and wonders. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's page 809. 809 of the Bibles provided. And follow along as I read kind of a summary of The mighty signs and wonders that Jesus performed right at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew chapter 4 verses 23 to 25. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from and, uh, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." Now just turn over a few pages uh, to Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Open your Bibles to Matthews chapter 8 and 9. And and just scan the headings that your, your Bible is likely given to these various sections. If you were just to scan the headings of these two chapters, you would see that Jesus cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic at a distance. He casts out demons, he heals the sick, calms a raging storm with a word, heals two more demon-possessed men, heals another paralytic, heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and raises a dead girl back to life. This is to say nothing of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Yes, Jesus' life was so full of signs and wonders like Moses, that toward the end of John's gospel... John would say this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And then John has this delicious little comment that he concludes his book with. In John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Yes, Jesus' life was indeed full of many signs and wonders like Moses. Now, the third requirement of Deuteronomy 34 is that the prophet like Moses must accomplish an exodus like Moses. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. That's on page 867 of the Bibles provided. And what's key to remember about this passage that we're going to read is that Jesus, he has just predicted his death and resurrection in verses 20 and 21. He he then tells his disciples to follow him, and then he takes his kind of inner circle up a mountain. For now, let's read verses 28 to 31. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter Jesus is transfigured, his eschatological glory is displayed, and he's chatting with Moses and Elijah. And who are they? They're prophets, right? And and what are they discussing? They're discussing his departure, or literally, his exodus. You've probably got a footnote there in your Bible, next to that word, departure. And if you find that footnote, you find it down at the bottom, you'll see that in Greek, it's the word for exodus, exodus. Jesus is about to accomplish his exodus in Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend into heaven. This is his exodus. And who is he chatting up about it? Well, none other than Moses. The one who has been through his own exodus. And where is Moses chatting Jesus up about this? On a mountain. Jesus had an exodus even greater than that of Moses. Moses' exodus brought the children of Israel out from slavery in Egypt, but Jesus' exodus would bring the people of God out from slavery to sin and death. Do you remember the fourth requirement was added in from Deuteronomy 18.15? Moses himself said that the people of God should listen to the prophet that God would raise up. So let's pick up our reading in Luke chapter 9, beginning there with verse 32, and see if we should listen to Jesus. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet that we've been waiting for since Deuteronomy 34, since Deuteronomy 18. More than that, he's the savior we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. He's the son we've been waiting for, the son who would crush the head of the serpent and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery to sin. Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34, not only brought great grief. It brought great hope. For though there had not arisen a prophet like him in all Israel, one day there would. Deuteronomy concludes on a note of anticipation. At one sense, that's the, the, the thread of the whole book, or the, 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 the tension of the whole book. There's this anticipation something's coming even beyond Moses, our great leader. It concludes on a note of of longing and looking for a New Testament Joshua who would lead God's people into God's promised land of heaven. Moses walked up that mountain knowing that he would go down to death. He also walked up that mountain knowing that one day he would see his Savior and Redeemer face to face. What about you? Do you have the confidence of Moses in the face of your death? Are you ready to meet your maker? Friend, there is one thing, if there is one thing, you should learn from Deuteronomy 34. It is that the prophet like Moses has come. Like Moses was prohibited from entering the promised land of Canaan, you and I, we deserve to be prohibited from entering the promised land of heaven. We have sinned like Moses. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin deserves to be punished through eternal death. We deserve to be eternally banished from God's loving presence. But the good news of the Bible is that one greater than Moses has come. Moses was a wonderful but a flawed and sinful man. Jesus, he was flawless. He was sinless. The Bible says that he knew no sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that Jesus was without sin. He was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and perfectly obedient to God. Jesus loved God the Father. Jesus perfectly obeyed. He loved him with every thought, every word, every deed, every single minute of every single day. He did not have one moment of sinful anger. His sinlessness is why he could give up his life on behalf of sinful men and women like you and me. That is why he was paid our wages In his death on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus bore the eternal wrath of God against the sins of all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days later, in him was performed the mightiest sign and wonder that mankind has ever seen. He got up from the dead. He was resurrected from the grave and now he calls each one of us to place our whole confidence and trust in him he is the one who through the power of his indestructible life has secured a home in the promised land of heaven for his people so friend, turn from your sin and believe that jesus lived for you died for you and was raised again from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him Follow him home to the promised land of heaven. This is how we may be certain that though we may die, yet shall we live. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses was given a final look over the promised land. The people of Israel, they looked back on Moses' death. They mourned Moses' death. And the author, of the, chapter, the author of the chapter has called us to look forward to Joshua and beyond to the hope of the prophet who would come to destroy the power of sin and death. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe that a prophet greater than Moses has come? Do you see and believe that the one Moses' life and ministry pointed to has come? And do you see and believe that like Joshua, he is leading his people home to the promised land of heaven. In Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting. But, until Jesus Christ comes, death is something that we must suffer. So so how do we prepare for death? We prepare for death like Moses by, by looking over the promises that our God has given to us in his word. We prepare for death by looking back to see God's faithfulness to his promises to the saints of old. Our God was faithful to bring his people into the promised land of Canaan. And he he will be faithful to bring us into the promised land of heaven. We prepare for death by looking forward to the immediate communion that we will have with our God. On that day, on that day, Oh we shall happy be when from sin and sorrow free lord we will dwell with thee blessed evermore let's pray together heavenly father we give you thanks the Lord Jesus, in whom is our whole hope of heaven. Father, we give you thanks for his sinless, sacrificial life and death. We give you thanks for his victorious resurrection from the grave, showing to us that we have life eternal in and through him. So as we live this day, And live every day that you are pleased to give us life and breath on this earth. As we live this day, help us to live looking forward in faith. Leaning upon the Lord Jesus and following after him all the way home. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our closing song is entitled, There is a Happy Land. And it can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Please go ahead and pull that insert out. This morning we considered Moses' um, look over the promised land of Canaan. And his look forward to the promised land of heaven. And in this song, along with Moses, we look forward to our inheritance in the promised land of heaven. So let's sing There is a happy land. Please stand as we sing.